This podcast contains occasional rude words and possibly some very wrong concepts. So you have to blame yourself for listening and we hope you have a laugh. G'day, it's the Moon Man here, Lawrence Mooney. Did you ever have a childhood dream denied but can live with yourself because at least you tried? Check out this podcast, Saturday Afternoon Fever, with Matthew Hardy and myself, where we remember what we were like as naughty kids, terrible teenagers and young, drunk, idiot adults. Anyway, Chapter 23. The Wagga Wagga Adventure. In 1989, Simon and I decided, along with a few friends, to see the Saints in Sydney for the first time. Finances and a sense of adventure determined rail would be our mode of transport. It was 8 o'clock on a Friday evening when we pulled out of Spencer Street Station, now known as Southern Cross Station, bound for New South Wales. I'd never been there before. The trip takes 13 hours by train. By 10 past 8, the bar may as well have been our own bed, so comfortable that we made ourselves in it. Sitting alongside Simon and me was Shane from Sindel Tech, who brought the girl to the game, Steve the Posty, our mate Fonzie, and our other mate Fats. To quote Baza McKenzie, we'd developed a thirst you could flame and photograph, and we were keen to quench it. Four hours on, as the clock struck 12, we were tired, emotional, and ready for some shut-eye. However, we were maintaining our momentum, and as there was no aggro evident, the barman, who at this point had become our best mate, made us an offer. (laughs) The bar was due to close, but if we promised to drink it dry, a feat that had apparently had never been achieved, then he was prepared to bend the rules and stay open. The gauntlet had been firmly thrown down, and we accepted. Drinking the bar dry. Yep. By two in the morning, the fridges were empty and we were full. Staggering back to our seats in the dark, we began asking the other passengers why they were so miserable. (laughs) (laughs) That one. Why are you smiling? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Right, when in fact most most of them were actually asleep. So we'd have to continue the party ourselves, we decided. We were singing When the Saints Go Marching In. Oh, no. Yeah. What terrible people. At full throttle. At what time in the morning? Oh, it was 2 a.m. plus. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Steve the Posty. I'm hating you. Steve the Posty reached for his bag in the luggage rack above us, searching for a small bottle of scotch that he'd stashed. The bag came crashing down onto the table between us, smashing the bottle and splashing the scotch everywhere. At this, po- <laughs> at this point, the conductor appeared, accusing us oh, yeah. of possessing unlicensed liquor. He looked Uh-oh. like he looked like Ronnie Blaskett, the ventriloquist who had his arm oh, up yeah. Jerry G, right? So little uh, kind of pencil moustache, twinkly yeah. eyes. Looked like he could have been, yeah, like a, the, a, a, I don't know, a cast member from a Wes Anderson film or something, right? Yeah, Ronnie uh, Blaskett, very little, famous. Little, little bellboy hat on, right? Anyway, mm. uh, so the conductor looked like Ronnie Blaskett, the ventriloquist, which I found confusing and made me feel squiffy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, said Steve the Posty, crimson-faced and stinking of scotch. Meanwhile, at the end of the aisle, our mate Fonzie had fallen short in his attempt to be sick in the sink and instead had spewed on someone's shoes. We were treading very close to big trouble. Next thing we knew, we heard the train's brake screech. The train had reached Wagga Wagga Station. Oh, I thought you were going to be kicked out midway. All right, fellas, out the lot of you. The conductor demanded in the darkness. So you're right. We tried to explain the situation, but things had reached a stalemate when the argument was interrupted by the sound of approaching sirens. Christ, it's the cops, Simon shouted. 
So we grabbed our bags and we bolted, bags in hand, scattering like students reacting to tear gas at a demonstration. My God. The scene so far, it's the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, and six drunks are running in all directions, ordered off a Sydney-bound express with the flashing blue lights of the law in pursuit. In the background, we could hear the sound of our train rumbling away towards Sydney on the tracks without us. I'd managed to find two factories built back-to-back with just enough space to squeeze myself in between. I stood there, still and silent, my mind muddled with alcohol, unable to comprehend exactly what was happening. (laughs) Everything has occurred so fast. I don't imagine the coppers tried too hard to find us, and eventually the cops headed back to headquarters, leaving us to locate each other in soft whispers through the shadows in the night. And, of course, no mobile phones, no maps. You're just in the middle of nowhere. Immediately after that event, a fight seemed certain amongst us, but it never eventuated. There was a lot of recriminations and blame so and there's finger you, pointing. there's Simon. There's Steve the Posty, there's Shane, so, there's Fonzie, there's Fats. And uh, we're all hiding in different sort of areas within a, I don't know, 200-metre radius. So there's six of you in the middle of the night. Everyone get their bags off? Yep. Oh. Don't know how that happened, but yeah, yeah we did. Don't know how that happened. Well, maybe. I can't recall, but anyway. Uh, that level of drunkenness, though, it just occurs... At those ages, but in retrospect, God, it's a mindless. It's thing ridiculous. To do, a lot of the stuff I'm writing in this book, people say they love this book. It's hilarious. I think it actually speaks of a, a putrid contribution moron. to society at the time. A putrid, <laughs> a putrid, a putrid moron. <laughs> a memoir. <laughs> Saturday afternoon fever is being re-released and uh, retitled as putrid moron. I tell you what. That would that would sell like an Irving Welsh novel. <laughs> Putrid moron. <laughs> You're laughing at your own joke and I'm laughing at being called a putrid moron. <laughs> oh, you know, the idea that you can't laugh at your own joke, that you say something funny that amuses you, I just think is false modesty. If something's funny, it's funny. Fair enough. Now, back to the book. (laughs) The whys, the wherefores and the hows of our swift departure from that train are debated among us to this day. At the time, At the time, tempers flared. We were stranded, equally distant from both our Melbourne homes and our Sydney. Stranded, far from home, stranded. You know who sings that? Uh, The Saints. Yes, hello. Thank you. Tie in. Thank you. Oh, yeah. We were stranded, (laughs) equally distant from both our Melbourne homes and our Sydney destination to the SCG. What to do? The decision was unanimous. We'd come this far, we agreed, so we'd follow the original plan, even if it broke our budget. Six blokes hitchhiking proved spectacularly unsuccessful at 3am by this point. Passing trucks merely tooted their horns in contempt. The bus depot we discovered had been warned about us in advance, but luckily the incoming driver of the latest night bus decided to take pity on us. He told us to sit down and shut up or we'd get kicked off yet another moving vehicle. And so we arrived many hours later, the worst for wear, at the Sydney Cricket Ground. We hoped to harass the infamous white-haired pensioner Swan supporter who sat behind the goals, waving wildly as we saw on TV every second Sunday, but we weren't allowed to enter that area. So we stood on the hill, which Sydney at the, MC, at the SCG still had, but it was poorly populated that day and didn't seem recognisable to us as the lively place we'd watched on telly during summer cricket matches. Still, at least the result for it was familiar. The Saints received a thrashing. Warwick Kappa kicked six goals and used, <laughs> and used Saint fullback Danny Frawley as a stepladder all afternoon. Somehow we managed to make it back to Melbourne without further incident. So let me just uh, retrace your steps here. You were intending to get off at Wagga Wagga. Yep. 
No. You, no, you just got kicked off at Wagga Wagga. Yeah. Right. But not at the station, just in the middle of nowhere. It was, I mean, it was about, when I say, I, in the, I wrote, I was surprised when I just read that, so it must have been an error that went through. But mm. um, no, it was about, I don't know, half mile short of Wagga Wagga Station. All right, so it was a punitive measure rather than stopping at the station. It's like, let's get these blokes off. Or had it come to such a critical incident that you needed to go and now? I don't, either way, I think there was just sort of chaos occurring and, and uh, they wanted us off that train. And well, I, one of your friends had thrown up on someone, which yeah. is, I reckon, a trigger yeah. for pulling the brake. But I do remember when we jumped off, we were trying to get out because we could hear sirens coming. And I imagine the sirens were right. heading for the station. Oh, I, th- I think the st- sirens were heading for the station and we maybe one of us pulled the bloody... Good God, maybe one of us pulled that emergency, pulled the emergency brake. brake. But I do remember when we got off, we had to, uh, really uh, uh, quite a deep drop off the train yeah. onto the dead tracks for the, the trains that would go the other way, but luckily there wasn't one at that moment. Um, so I think we demanded to get off before the station or pulled the emergency trigger. Terrible. But just an Again, absolute like you said, mess. Like you said about the brown eye in the ghost train, um, <laughs> you know, would be perceived that behaviour as way worse now than it already was anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Because not only would it have been reported in the Wagga Wagga Times, <laughs> it, would have, it would have been filmed by everybody on that train and be all across social media. Maybe, So yeah. everyone then passes opinion on you. But I still hold that bloody barman responsible. He encouraged us, Lawrence. I mean, I know everyone's responsible for their own behaviour, but he certainly uh, lit the fuse. No? Absolutely he did. I mean, no RSA back then, no responsible service of alcohol. It was like, all right, boys, if you can drink the bar dry, I'll leave it open. You know what he looked what? like? I distinctly, if the other guy, if the conductor looked like Ronnie Blaskett, mm. right, the ventriloquist who was famous at the time. You know what this world needs now? A famous ventriloquist. There isn't one. Or is there? There's, <laughs> Nina, there's Nina Conti. Nina both, Conti. But also, what, what's the, um, not Salzman. Uh, By the way, da- you know Nina David, Conti? David. Oh, that's right. Strassman. Yeah. Strassman. That's yeah. right. Yeah, with Ted E. Bear. Ted E. Bear, a a naughty bear that swears. That's right. Why don't you get fucked? (laughs) What did you say, Teddy? (laughs) I saw you in the shower having a wank. Oh, no, Teddy, don't talk about wanking. (laughs) Fuck off, ventriloquists. (laughs) A mutual mate of ours. You know Sharon's Grace, don't you? Uh, Yeah, I know Sharon. Yeah, so she, uh, she's a legend and uh, married to my mate Colin Marshall. Both of them, he gets gets a mention in this book. I first got to know Sharon uh, through Art of Services when uh, the Comedy Channel first started up. Steve Weisard's company, and she recently was one of the uh, producers or, um, you know, main arrangers, organisers, maybe floor managers on um, Spicks and Specs that was filmed during the um, COVID era. So anyhow, that said, she used to... Be, Can uh, you please, uh, before we go on, uh, pass on my very best to Sharon Scrace. I remember her fondly. Great woman. Well, she's a listener to this podcast, so you've just done it okay. yourself. Hey, Sharon. Anyhow, so um, she used to be curled up in a box, almost fetal style, uh, ready to put her arm up one of um, David Strassman's spare puppets uh, when he would shock the crowd and point oh. to a puppet like, you know, further than arm's reach away on the stage. Mm-hmm that would start uh, talking all by itself. I think this is pre, pre-animatronics or pre-his ability to afford such technology. Right. And, and so uh, she was operating it. Yeah, just basically but was he still curled up in this little box. Was he still ventriloquizing? The, 
Yeah, he I was saw probably... your I saw your cock. Oh, <laughs> don't say that. That's naughty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall I don't recall Teddy Bear talking about wanking or cocks, Lawrence. I'm not oh, sure. No, I'm a teddy bear and I say naughty things. You shouldn't say that. You're, oh, yeah. you're meant to be cute and lovely. Yeah, I get the Yeah, angle. why don't you stick it up your ass? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I reckon ventriloquists suck. Right. Sorry, ventriloquists. Nina Conti. Nina Conti. She's the daughter of Tom Conti. Yeah. Who's an actor in... uh, Reuben Reuben. No, the Um, famous one uh, about the beach and it's got the... Shirley Valentine. Yeah, Shirley Valentine. The <laughs> the one with the beach, yeah, the and one with the, the actress, yeah, the one with the You're, beach and the actress, yeah, that's great. You go into Blockbuster back in the day. <laughs> Excuse me, mate. Uh, I want the movie, you know, with the beach and the actress. What's that one? <laughs> Shirley Valentine. Thanks. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was that the one? No, no, coming home. Yeah. No, the other one was coming home or going home, where it had the. Uh, the... His most famous one is Shirley Valentine, but. He did another the, one the called in it is more Coming famous. Home or Going Home, and it had a uh, soundtrack by Mark Knopfler. And uh, remember? It was that... No, that's Local Hero. Local Hero, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, uh, with Burt Lancaster in it. Is it? It's got nothing to do with Tom Conti. I'm mixing me I don't know whether Tom Conti's in it, but Burt Lancaster is the rich CEO that goes to see the Northern Lights right at the end of it. It's got a motorbike going through it the whole way. That's a, the ongoing joke. I don't know whether Tom Conti is in that, actually. Uh, I'm not going to check either because we you don't do phones or Google on this show. No, in an earlier uh, episode, you were brilliant at impersonating Bathurst supercars, right? But, but, but mm-hmm. just then... Mm-hmm. You tried to do a motorbike impersonation. I don't no, know why. That was a mini bike. It was, was it? kind of like trail bike. What's going on? They kind of go ning, 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 No, it's like a crazy frog. What's happening? Yeah, it's a little bit crazy frog. Anyway, enough of the stupid sound effects. The Triumphant Return. This is a subchapter within the Wagga Wagga Adventure. My failure as a footballer was due to a serious skill shortage under pressure. I was <laughs> and I emphasize Unco. I emphasize I emphasize under pressure, right? I was unable to in- initiate any piece of play. An average training session saw me matching my teammates in most skills, right? I could kick well, handball well, mark well, but my limitations arose only under match conditions. <laughs> In other words, when it mattered. Kicking out from goal, taking a mark, accepting a free <laughs> kick, no problem. Uh, as all these situations allowed me a few seconds to assess the state of play. Gaining possession with the ball bouncing free was when I became confused. It's pretty hard, isn't it? Oh, the pressure in such situations was too intense for my mind to master. The action always left me behind. The pack would split in several directions, leaving me standing still. Whereas Greg Diesel Williams, who played for the Swans and Carlton and before that Geelong, his perfect peripheral vision seemed to give him extra time with the ball in his hand, right? Whilst other players would seemingly be freeze-framed while he decided what to do with that ball, I felt as if the players were in fast-forward while I was on pause. He uh, had this miraculous ability, and I'd... I saw it in him first and then I saw it in kind of local footy a bit more and now it's a it's a thing where uh, he would be, you know, in the middle of the play, he would go and win his own ball and then uh, he's going to, he knows he's about to be tackled and he'd lift the ball up 
That's right, that above it, his head. Yeah, above his head, knowing that his trunk and his thighs were strong enough to wear the tackle and kind of either sway it off or shake it and then handball from above his he- head and it'd be 30-metre handball. Yeah, But incredible. he would wear the tackle and put the ball above his head. Um, Nathan Buckley used to do it too. So the ball's above the tackle. It's not going to be dislodged from the hands. And they're so strong, they wear the tackle, sometimes shrugging it and then running off too. And I, so, and, and so cool. I was never able to do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> My body would bend like a pipe cleaner <laughs> and I would be on the ground. Yeah, what's the opposite of cool in a crisis? <laughs> <laughs> a pipe cleaner. <laughs> I, another thing I couldn't do was a decent bushman's blow. Right when oh, I held when I held on. when I held one nostril shut and tried to express the excess snot, it always ended up clinging to the side of my face and like <laughs> stringing along my arm instead of heading towards the ground. <laughs> so you couldn't get the bullet out, no, or a whip back onto your eyebrow. Disgraceful. The former the former Port Melbourne and Footscray full forward Freddie Cook, over six foot in height and ruggedly handsome, turned up to training at Oakley Districts one night with a view to playing for our senior side. Right, club officials were over the moon. I was paired with him during the drills that night, and at the age of 45, the infamous ex-junkie still took one-handed marks on the run in the pouring rain. Despite the fact that his belly overhung and his head looked hungover, I'd never seen such skills. He has now departed the room too, Freddie. He's no longer with us. Isn't he? No. That's a shame. Anyway. So you can leave junkie in and not get sued. (laughs) (laughs) Ex-junkie. Yep. Yep. He was. I think he was. In fact, uh, Fred Cook, when he played for Port Melbourne, uh, had a heart attack as a very young man uh, and recovered from the heart attack, went back and played VFA football. But I just wonder if in the teams, in the paper that week, it was Cook out, heart attack, where they put normally put <laughs> knee or ankle or hamstring or suspended. Lacerated buttocks. <laughs> Cook out. Coronary occlusion. <laughs> Freddie Cook wasn't seen again after that first training session, but I was delighted to learn that even he does push-ups with an eye on the coach, sitting a few out when he's out of view. You know that thing? Absolutely, I do. You want to do push-ups in a line as the coach walks back and forth along that line? Yeah, and you keep an eye on the coach, and then there's the guy that does it with his chin or his eye line looking straight out, and his chin hits the ground. That oh, yeah. is... That's miraculously right. strong. Blokes that do it properly and end up playing well as a result. Yeah. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Oakry Districts Football Club represented my final fling at footy glory. There's going to be some more disastrous behaviour about to happen here. The Southeast Suburban League contains some of the toughest, now called Southern League, uh, but back then in particular, some of the toughest football teams in the country. Oakley Districts produced David Reese jones who early in his career was one of the most notoriously vigorous players the game had ever seen. I hadn't played football since the under-16s. Now I was six foot three, yet just 11 stone. How many kilos would that be? Oh, well, no one under 11, 74 is listening anyway. Um, I could have <laughs> hidden behind the goalpost. Senior footy meant a serious mouth guard. This time I needed more than the over-the-counter creation. The dentist's appointment involved biting into a rubber dish full of some gummy pink fluorescent fluid that tasted like cough medicine. When the finished product arrived a week later, it fitted so snugly that I wore oh. the marvellous bright white mouth guard around the house for the sheer pleasure of it, like you said you used to do as a kid. And also, if you could yawn um, into the mic a bit more loudly, that would encourage my storytelling skills. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I have been up since 3 a.m. Fair enough. 
five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> you, you, you've been burping into this microphone the no, whole no, no, every no, no, episode. No, 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 no. no. Once okay. earlier today, right. before we began, Lawrence, <laughs> and I apologise. Five minutes right. into the... Sorry for the yawn, everyone. Let's cut that out. To me. I know. Get everyone. I I'm know. The one t- putting my life on the line here, Lawrence. Do you want to go back to the mouth guard and I'll stop yawning? No. All right. Five minutes into the third quarter, my big moment arrived. Off came the dressing gown, and I was limbering up, doing some oh, good old-fashioned... dressing gown. Yep. I was limbering the, up. The poorer clubs would have a tartan dressing gown, like what your dad would wear, and the richer clubs would have one in club colours. That's right. Off came the dressing gown, and I was limbering up on the boundary line, doing some good old-fashioned, super-fast jogging on the spot. <laughs> Letting the coach know I was serious. Ready? Yeah. Then, high-fiving the player I was replacing, away I went. Coming onto the ground against Mount Waverley on their home ground with my extra-long laces wrapped around and around under my boots about 12 bloody times, I was more than a little nervous, wondering if I really could cut it in an adult competition. Picking up their in-form full forward, I instantly adopted the Mick Gafer method. I held on to my opponent's jumper as he went to lead for the ball. The former mm. Collingwood defender, Gafer, had been criticised in the press by Dermot Brereton, who claimed that Gafer's negative tactics were against the rules and used to disguise a lack of ability. I can't speak on Gafer's behalf, but Brereton's description was an accurate summary of my reason <laughs> for illegally holding on to my opponents. It was the only way I could ever consider potentially winning the contest. In this case, it was crucial. I was determined that my first outing as a senior footballer was not going to end in humiliating failure. Not to try no away. way. So were you in the ones or the reserves? In the reserves, but still, it was yeah. it was adults. It wasn't like an under sixteens team anymore. You were no. playing with anyone aged from say you know nineteen to thirty nine. And often in the reserves, there was a bloke at the end of his career who'd played a lot of ones oh, football. Don't go there yet. Couldn't let it go. Don't go and there was yet. just full of spite. Please, he's about to. That person in, <laughs> okay. is about to surface. <laughs> Sorry, maybe you've triggered a memory. Right. My teammates had a willing reputation, so I figured that if the fist flew as a result of me holding illegally onto my opponent, all I'd have to do was avoid the first few and wait for the cavalry to arrive. Now, I believe, I don't want to uh, speak poorly of my former teammates, but quite a few of them might have done time as either juvenile or adult criminals. Um, And what better place for a guy to go through rehabilitation than on a field of sport where there is a potential of violence. Yeah, exactly. Good, and there was good a couple, plan. Sometimes you'd be in the rooms, and I won't name them, but you know, a certain bloke or teammate would come up and go, Hardy, <laughs> what, what are you doing after training? Go, I, don't, I don't know. I think I'm going to the. Uh, I think I'm going to the. Uh, I'll go to the Forest's Arms to go and see the John Cougar Mellon Band, you know, again or something. Yeah. Go, no, 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 no. No, I need to steal a horse. Yeah, they'd be stealing horses. They'd be asking you to. Uh, is it okay if I drive your station wagon off a cliff down at Phillip Island and we can <laughs> go, right. go? Yeah, we can go halves in the insurance. And though maybe it was an off-air conversation because uh, the horse was in a float that had returned from uh, either a track work or a race meeting, and the guy would go inside to have his dinner or his breakfast, and it was there prime for the taking, the yeah, float the, and the horse. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that kind of crime. Um, that kind of crime. Yeah. Like crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Insurance fraud and theft. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. Not nasty stuff like, you know, being put on a watch list and having to wear one of those electronic bracelets. <laughs> Just crime. <laughs> they weren't robbing banks or hurting people. Not anyway. being put in supermax for planning a bombing at a sporting <laughs> fixture. Just crime. Right. You know, relax everyone. <laughs> anyway, Mount Waverley's winger came steaming out of the centre square. My opponent 
having kicked five goals so far on our usual oh. fullback, who'd been dragged as a result, attempted to lead for the ball, but his timing was hampered by, by my not-so-subtle scragging. I'd ruined his rhythm by holding his jumper at the wrong moment. Uh, as he ran too far under the ball, I just stayed where I was and marked unopposed. Try that again, and I'll punch you in the fucking head, he warned me. He wasn't very big. <laughs> he wasn't very big, but his confidence made me extremely uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, I'm shaking in my boots, mate, I replied. The car- so sarcastic- <laughs> I'm- Yeah, I'm shaking in my boots, mate, I replied. The sarcastic tone belying my genuine fear and <laughs> winking anus. <laughs> <laughs> winking anus is a surefire giveaway that you're pretty frightened. Yeah. Especially if the guy on the mark can hear it. Yep. <laughs> Minutes later, the same winger comes streaming out of the centre square. Full forward goes to make the same lead. I hold his jumper again. This time the full forward punches me in the fucking head. Oh. He was a man of his word. I punched him back. We wrestled each other onto the ground, still trading blows, but up close because we were holding each other's jumpers so there's not much room to throw the fist up bit more or down safe. either way. Luckily, just in time, in came a cavalcade of opposing colours. It wasn't a pretty sight. Our blokes reveled in the rough stuff, as I've said, and after some initial strong resistance, our team soon gained supremacy in the punch-on. The sound of knuckle on jaw is always sickening. Ooh. Even as a one-off, let alone when there are so many, it sounds like a herd of horses galloping down a cobblestone alley. As we resumed our positions, I was shaken, but he stood up as a ghost of his former self. When the final siren sounded, he hadn't kicked a goal on me. Uh, We lost after a commendable comeback, but the coach liked what he'd seen. I'd hardly had a touch, but at least I'd stopped the rot. Hadn't had a goal kicked on me, and thereafter I found a regular role for the rest of the year at fullback. Oh. You were in the twos. You know, at different you, were, you were locked into the Magoos. Um, so do you remember how much you lost that game by? No. I don't know, three goals. Flogged. Oh, okay. So not a big margin. No. Just to be competitive in some teams is almost like a win, right? Yeah. But also to take a mark very early on and uh, stymie the flow, it's good. Yeah. Now, you know what? I've often thought to myself, and I've actually said on this uh, podcast, that I was never bullied and nor did I bully. Yeah, but uh, the last couple of episodes I've spoken of, uh, you know, being a part of a two-man team that doubled up to belt some kid that was playing too well against us, and yep. now I'm taking advantage of guys who are tougher than me but happen to be my teammates yep. to defeat an opponent. I think I need to oh. reass- reassess my younger self, Lawrence. Which uh, I suppose self- all of us try and do all the time, don't we? Well, of course. Uh... It's not a bad thing to go back and have a look at your behaviours, but uh, the fact that you're reading from your own book and you've been put into a brown study as whether you're a, a bully in retrospect is very interesting to a, watch a, a as bra- you go through it. What's a brown study? A brown study is basically a long pondering of your, your actions or a, a, you know, a thoughtful process. Right. It's a phrase. It's a, it's, it'll be in the Oxford English Dictionary. Learn something every day from the great educator. After six similar weeks in a row... Am I a great educator? Because I don't learn my own lessons. I've made the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs> That's called consistency in some circles. Yeah. After six similar efforts... In others. Anyway. After, after six back, weeks... I'll, I'll, back to the book. After six weeks of similar efforts, I felt satisfied for the first time in my footballing life. We were now winning most games. My kickouts from goal tended to go to one of my teammates every time... And opposition full forwards was and opposition full forwards were scoring fuck all against me. At training, teammates jokingly began to call me the giant killer. 
The captain of the first took such a shine to me that he sneakily smeared a thin film of deep heat in my spare undies as I showered as a touching male bonding gesture. Oh, he must have really liked it to even go to the trouble yeah. of hurting your genitals. <laughs> <laughs> I remember standing in the bar feeling pretty good about myself and then this sort of general heat began to well in my undercarriage and uh, and then everyone else was like, um, almost like that Jim Carrey scene in uh, Dumb and Dumber where they put the chilli in the bloke's burger and they're, waiting for- <laughs> <laughs> and they're waiting for him after he takes a bite to uh, respond. Everyone, little did I know that the whole bar of my teammates was uh, in on the joke and awaiting my discomfiture to begin. So how did it start to present itself? Were you just shifting around? Could they see you or did you know straight away? Yeah, you start shifting around at the bar because you go, what's going on in my undies? My me, me ball bag's starting to heat the hell up. It's like really the quickly. bulldog. Well, anyway. <laughs> Last scene on the ghost train at Luna Park is now getting hot. There's a lot of your ball sack in this book. No, a there's lot. not. No, there's not. <laughs> no, there is not. And in fact, I do not want to ever see that on a reprint as your quote on the back cover. All right? Because first of all, it's not true. And secondly, I'm not sure it'll sell books. I want to see this when Hardy Grant or whoever's publishing it relaunch it. Hang on, hang on, excuse me, it's Penguin Random House. Okay. Thank you, Lawrence. Penguin Random House. Sorry, Penguin Random House, uh, all due respect. Uh, putrid Moron. And the, uh, <laughs> now that's and the, the name cover, of the book. And the cover quote is, there's a lot of ball sack in this book, <laughs> Lawrence Mooney. <laughs> <laughs> there's not, there, there is not, though. I think that's the first mention of no, a ball bag. No, I'm kidding. Right. How dare you? <laughs> Um, Sorry for being a good friend and having a joke with you. <laughs> so, so sensitive about my ball bag. <laughs> There's not a lot of ball sack in this book. It's a beautiful portrayal of a kid on the outside wanting to play footy. <laughs> Moon Man reckons it's ball sack and it's bullshit. Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball sack, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. Bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us. Okay, if you haven't given us a rate and review, now's the time. We're counting on you. Ample. Hear, hear. Is this thing on? Yeah, that's on. Don't have to.